Welcome to Sunburnt Country Music, interviews with Australian country music artists. My name is Sophie and I have been interviewing Australian country music artists for over a decade and I still love it. I love their stories, I love their insights and I love their music. So I hope you enjoy hearing from them on this podcast. Michael Carpenter is a singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist and producer who has several music musical projects on the go at any given time. Michael Carpenter and the Banks Brothers have released three albums and an EP, and they currently have two nominations uh, for the Golden Guitar Awards, but not their first nominations. Michael Carpenter and the CRC or Country Rock Collective have released three singles. That's not even the full extent of what Michael Carpenter does, so there's a lot to talk about. Hello, Michael. Hey, Sophie. How are you going today? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very keen to talk to you because I've been so aware of all your activities for um, a, a long time now. Um, but the first thing I'd like to know is, do you have a large whiteboard on which you track these different activities? Because <laughs> I think you have many simultaneous projects. Um, I think because I've been doing it for a long time, I've gotten I've gotten really good at, um, at being able to step back and and be aware of the overview of, of things. Um, and what happens, and I think that anybody who you'll speak to about about this in any kind of career. Once you get into the rhythm of how things are supposed to work and when they're supposed to work, um, I always say to, to students or to anybody who will listen, basically, is if you've got an endpoint, you can plan around that. So I'm, uh, I don't have a whiteboard, but I do have a to-do app on my phone that I, that I live or die on. And there's several levels of that in terms of bigger picture things. And then Every day there'll be a specific thing of what are the things I need to get through today. Um, some of them will be, it'll be my own personal projects. Others will be for clients and stuff like that. So I think it's just become one of those things where I've just become very good at project management. And um, and so when you become good at project management, you push yourself and go, well, how far can I push this and how many things can I squeeze in? Without, without, feel, without feeling like you're squeezing things in, but... I, I manage my time very, very, very well. And in doing that, it allows you opportunities to do things that most people would just kind of go, oh, I haven't got the time for that. Yeah, right. Would you like to share which to-do app it is? Oh, uh, it's actually, I don't even know when I found it. It's just called Do. Right. Okay. Very, very basic. And I didn't go to the, like, it still comes up with ads down the bottom usually. Yeah, right. But it's very simple. And people can do it on notes on their phone and stuff like that. The trick with to-do lists, but Sophie, is you got to look at them. <laughs> it's one thing. It's one thing to 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 writing your to do list. It's another thing to just ignore it completely and then go, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm 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 really good with things like that. And even like I've got a shopping list app, so that you know when we run out of things, it goes straight on the shopping list. So we so that when I go shopping every Sunday for me and the kids, we never forget anything. Um, so it's just little things like that. I think it's just to an organized mind because I hate double handling things and I hate um I hate being counterproductive. So um and the other side of side to that side of that is that if you are um if you are organized you can be hyper productive and that's kind of where I kind of live. Yeah. And you mentioned getting good at project management. Of course that is a separate skill from the other skills that you have. So it is yeah. something that you need to develop and practice and maintain. Yeah, look, I, I think for any any professional in any field of work, but particularly um, in the audio field um, or even as an artist and stuff like that, 
Um, opportunities to earn money are different than a lot of other uh, fields of work. So if we have to be more organised and compartmentalised about things so that we know that if we do this amount of work and this amount of work and this amount of work, we can pay our rent this week and, you know, or as it's coming up to Christmas time now, I know I, I had financial targets that I needed to hit by kind of next week. That means I can actually have a couple of weeks off. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just little things like that. I think it's, it is a very, very different skill, but I think it's, I can't overstate how important it is to be on top of all that because ultimately it does set a platform where you can be more creative freely, I think is yeah. the point. And it's, that's such a great point because I wouldn't mind betting some people think it's, it's counter, counter to being intuitive and creative when actually having that structure is very freeing. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the the whole studio thing we've got, so you can see my studio, my messy studio is there behind me. Um, my whole modus operandi and and me and Matt Fell when we set up Love Hurt Studios all those years ago, one of the things that we talked about was we were very, very frustrated by the traditional studio model. Everything took a long time to do. What happens when you, and it's not just about being fast, it's about being fast and good. But what happens if you can get through ideas quickly is it liberates people to suggest things that they normally wouldn't. Right. You know? um, so it, it is, it, there's a little bit of mind trickery to it, whereas if somebody says, oh, can we put a backing vocal down there and I can go grab a microphone and we can be doing it in 30 seconds, people are more likely to suggest things. And I've always had this thing of opening up doors of creativity. Mm-hmm. So if you can if you can make it so that that's less of a restriction then people will allow themselves to be more creative. Yeah. And that's the way that it's all set up. And that's probably the way that my whole life is set up, even down to things like I've got a gig tomorrow night, but then I've got, uh, I'm going away on Saturday, on on uh, Friday morning for shows in Hobart, in, in Tasmania for a couple of days. But after I get off this, this Zoom call tonight, I'm packing my gear. I know exactly where things are going. I've got a checklist app as well. I've made that checklist over the course of today to make sure that it's just a case of going that into that into that into that, and off we go. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's so, so everything you say is so interesting, including the fact that you know the speed at which you can do things liberates people to suggest more things because of Absolutely. course they could see they could see their idea being executed swiftly. Yeah, look, I, I come from a history. The first big serious band I was in, uh, the guys who are older than me. And I have very, very clear memories of, and of course, bands are bands, are bands. you know, there's always going to be power struggles and personalities and bands and stuff like that. But I can remember clearly one day we spent about 90 minutes talking about whether an idea was valid enough to even try. And I was a young guy in the band and just a drummer in the band. And so I kept on saying, can we, um, can we just try it and have a listen to it? And it's like, and it became a personal thing of, no, it's not worth it for this. And, and we ended, never ended up trying it. And it may have been the greatest idea ever. So I, I've got a bit of a rule in here. If you have an idea, we have to hear the idea. It's only in the hearing it that we can work out whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. Mm-hmm. The good thing about it is that people, when they're they're encouraged to be free creatively, they're not idiots. They don't generally suggest things that are bad ideas. It's just so it becomes a case then of sorting out through all the good ideas which ones are going to be the most appropriate for the narrative and the song and the bigger picture of what the artist is trying to say. So there's more to it than just being quick and economical. It is that whole thing of creativity. Creativity is king for me. If you pull apart the economics of being a musician or you know how much it costs to make records, I want to create a situation where people can just create art and, and be artistic about things and 
so that's kind of the way that I've set everything up. And it's it's obviously spilled over into my solo careers. Yeah. I've been able to be really productive. And also the fact that um, you obviously live with the belief that ideas are not scarce and, and that that could be a trap that some creative people fall into, thinking, oh, this one idea, I need to hold on to it. We may need to discuss it for 90 minutes before we do anything with it. But oh, yeah. You, you know, if you try something, let it go. Other ideas come in. It is that energetic flow of, of you know, nature abhorring a vacuum, I guess, is part of it. If you if the idea doesn't work, get rid of it and let something else come in. Oh, look, one one of the, about 10 years ago, I had a really good client say to me that um, the thing that was best about me as a producer wasn't my ability to play music or sing or project management. It was the fact that at any given moment, I've got plan B, C, D, and E ready to go. Um, there was there was a particular session that I was doing. I was I was producing um, a live orchestral record with live singers, so it was like a sixty piece orchestra and two singers. Um, and the morning of uh, of the session, this was at Trackdown Studio. Big, it was a big thing. It was a three day session to record a whole album live on the studio floor with an orchestra. So you can imagine the expense. Yeah. Um, the female singer turned up with a head cold. And the guy who was, you know, financing the whole thing went into a big, big panic. Now, I also went into an internal panic, but in my head I'd played through the scenarios of how we were going to get around it, and I just very, very calmly went, you can do this or this or this or this, but it's okay. As it turned out, we didn't need to do any of those things. She kind of, you know, steamed up and, and sung really, really well in the end of it. But the fact that there's always other scenarios lined up ready to go. Again, what it does is it means that when you're trying to be creative, you say to people, your first idea isn't always the best idea. The first idea may be the most cliche or the easiest one or the one we've heard a million times before. Uh, what's your second idea and what's your third idea? Because that's when people start to dig deep. And then again, they're expanding the boundaries of what it is that they perceive their creativity to be. So the next time they, by default, they don't go to the obvious idea, they go to the second one. So it's just teaching people to 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 push their creativity. And look, sometimes the, the first idea is the right idea because, you know, this isn't brain surgery, you know, it's, it's, it's rock and roll or country music and sometimes it's just doing that thing is the thing you're meant to do. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's, I find the whole thing very interesting and exciting Um but yeah, it, it is my job in most situations to be able to just either provoke people to go to a deeper place of creativity, or when they look around at me, or everybody looks around the room and at me and goes, "Well, what's next?" I'm yeah. the one that says the answers. <laughs> I guess provoke people, but also enable them to feel safe doing it because that what yeah, you're yeah. talking about, you're letting go of the first idea, going to the second or the third idea, that that suggests that they're going perhaps to a more vulnerable place as an artist and offering something that they might not otherwise have shown you and they need to feel safe in order to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And Sophie, that opens up a whole can of worms is the fact that people go to their safe place because of exactly what it is. It's it's safe and in this room and, and all the studios that I've been in, you know, it can be a place of great vulnerability for people, you know, all their insecurities. Can I sing that? Can I play that? How will people react to the thing I'm about to say now? in deference to the thing that I released three months ago. And so people do retreat very easily to their safe place and sometimes they have to be coaxed to push beyond it. Mm. Um, and, look, I, I remember I, I, I used to write for Audio Technology Magazine 
And one of my big articles I did was talking about the psychology of record production. And I, I interviewed 20 of my great, pretty high profile record, record um, producer mates. And I asked them a bunch of questions, but one of the questions was, what percentage of your job is psychology? And every one of them said it was above 75%. Right. So it was less to do with what microphone to put in front of what source or what guitar to pick up the wall and more to do with whether the lead singer needs a Snickers before they go back in to do that next vocal line or whether somebody needs to be hydrated or whether today is a good day to to to, to do a vocal at all and stuff like that. So um, it's a massive part of what record making is about. I know from interviewing artists whom you have produced, like Cassidy Ray, for example, I know she she considers you like a collaborator um, and that's, you know, she'll bring you an idea, you're working on the song together and and clearly for her that has meant, because she's released several great singles, that she feels like she's being pushed to the best place for her. So um, and it seems that you are a natural collaborator. You're in these different collectives, bands. I t- tend to think of those collectives in a way, but um, um, one of them has collective in its name. Um, but do you think you are just a natural-born collaborator? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. There's there's a nice little um, juxtaposition behind the fact that on a lot of the records that I make, I'm the whole band, so I play the drums and bass and guitars and keyboards and and stuff like that. And yet, I I never have got the feeling that um, that I feel isolated in that. Um, I think because and again, without yanking my own chain, one of the things that is good about my situation is the fact that. I've been a drummer in a, in bands for a long time or a bass player in bands for a long time. So I know what it's like to be that person in that environment. So when it's time for to work on somebody's project and play drums, I'm not just the producer who plays drums. I'm the drummer. And I just take on that persona. Um, it is look, one of the great things about it, um, like I said, because I do play all the instruments on a lot of people's records, is the fact that it becomes all about the relationship that I have with the artists that I'm working with. And you mentioned Cassidy Ray. I'm great friends with Cassidy Ray, and I've seen her grow a lot over the time that we've we've worked together. And a lot of that has be, has been because she's been safe to explore and create a lot and go down wrong paths and be corrected and come back and and stuff. And so, yeah, I think that um, I think that my role is is as much a cheerleader. My style of producing is I'm, I'm very much a cheerleader. It's not everybody's preferred way of record producing. I know that there are a whole bunch of other producers who separate themselves from the personal, but for me, I'm all in. I feel like that's an extension of my personality. And so I feel like I'm a collaborator. I feel like I'm part of every project. It makes it hard when they decide to go and work with somebody else, which they should, they should do. It feels like a breakup to some degree every time it happens. <laughs> But I don't, I don't, I mean, but it, like I said, it, it is a natural thing for people to do. I can't be everything to everybody all the time. I'm also very, very grateful to have people who've been working with me for a long, long, long time who will continue to push each other and reinvent each other mm-hmm. uh, in the creative environment. And it's great fun. It is just great fun. And I love, I love when my friends come into the house and they're, and, and it's just, the first conversation is, right, so what are we doing now? Yeah, right. Um, and it is that thing of, well, this is what we've done before. What are we doing next? And it's and it's almost like, ooh, what can we cook up next? Yeah. It's great. It's very exciting. When did your producing life start? Oh, look, it, that's a very interesting question. Um, I would say my producing life probably, in hindsight, I think I was a record producer before I was anything else. Yeah. Um, in my head, I think that I only ever learned to play these instruments because I wanted to make records. I mean, I probably didn't realise that until many, 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 many years later. 
Um, but I've always had this deep love affair with the way the records sound. Um, and all I ever wanted to do really in learning to play a variety of instruments was understand how they were they were done. You know, so I've become a hardcore nerd on all the instruments that I play, plus recording techniques, plus mixing techniques, plus understanding the history of how how we get from Frank Sinatra to Elvis to the Everly Brothers to the Beatles, you know, to Buck Owens to you know, and the history of that and seeing the evolution of these artists through all the different uh, technology changes and stuff like that. So I think I've just always been fascinated by that, and I've just learnt to play instruments to to be facilitators of of that love. I always say to people, I'm not in a multi instrument instrumentalist. I'm a facilitator. You want the job done, I'll find a way of doing it. Right. Uh, and then you do it once, you do it twice, you do it three times. All of a sudden, you can just do it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but there was a moment because I saw this on your social media where you were considering giving it up. Um, it was around oh, the time. Love hurts dissolving, and Imogen Clark was the one who brought you back. Yeah, look, in all in all honesty, and I'm sure that a lot of the artists that you talk to, I don't know whether they reveal this to you or not, but it's it's a weekly battle. It is a weekly battle when you look at your bank account on a Monday. I've got a bit of a rule too. I don't look at my bank accounts on a Monday morning. If if if, if a bill has to be paid, I say to people, I'll pay it on Tuesday because I don't look at my bank accounts on a Monday morning because. It's daunting because usually some people might have paid on the weekend and then it lands and stuff like that. Um, the Love Hurts, when Love Hurts finished, it was a big, it was a big moment of how do I exist outside of this space? You know, we spent 19 years in that space and me and Matt Fell had a great kinship and a lot of the producers who'd come through that space, it was home and it was, the room was built for me to my specifications and, so there is that thing of at that point I was a 55-year-old guy and you sit there and go, how many more years can, you know, 20-year-old, you know, country singers want to work with somebody like me where I stay relevant? Um, and so I started to question a lot of those sort of things. Moving things into here was daunting. Like I didn't know how it was going to work. Um, so there was a whole bunch of insecurities around that. And, yeah, the projects that I did with Imogen at the end of the time at Love Hurts uh, kind of came from nowhere. They started off as very, very small projects and then they kept on pushing me and I kept on answering the call like I'd been waiting for projects like this. And then when we moved in here, we just got braver and braver and the record that we've done over the last 12 months for Imogen is probably the best record I've ever made. Wow. Um, because I keep on pushing myself and they kept on pushing me, Imogen and her manager Jeremy kept on pushing me and their expectation of what I can do was very, very high and then they would make it harder and they'd push me harder. So, yeah, it's 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 always a bit of a battle. It's always a battle, especially, and then that project ends and you go, right, so what's next? And then you, the diary's quiet or a project disappears and you go, okay, so it really is, you're always kind of hanging by a thread to a degree. Mm -hmm. But that process you've just described with Imogen, uh, and I think all the work you've talked about uh, suggests to me that, that you constantly do push yourself. So you're not asking your artists to do anything you're not doing yourself, but also you must be constantly curious about what is next, what's out there, what's possible. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, one of the things that I look forward to most is the time between Christmas and New Year where I actually get some time to uh, reflect on what's been, but also to kind of plant some seeds uh, for the next 12 months um, and 
you know, I'm going through, I'm, I'm always going through a thing. And I've, I've got a, I've got a 19 year old daughter and a 14 year old son, and he's a great drummer. And we talk about the idea of you build the skill set not by practicing five hours a day, but by 10 minutes every day. Yeah. Um, you know, and so for me, one of the great things about having a little bit of a break is it means I can go and go to gym four times a week and I can sit at the piano and play for 15 minutes a day and practice my drum rudiments for 15 minutes a day and practice guitar for 15 minutes a day and try to create a sense of things. Listen to music for a little while that isn't work-related, you know, that's just out of curiosity. So, yeah, I think the, the day that I stop being curious about this stuff will be a sign to me that... Um, it might be time to wind it up, but for me, I'm just, I feel like I'm just getting good at things, you know, and my processes are refined so I can actually get through things really, really quickly and effectively. And uh, so it's great. It's great at the moment. Well, talking about music you are playing, let's uh, let's now shift to you as an artist, not a producer. And I'm going to start with the most recent one, which is the Country Rock Collective. Whose yep. idea was it and who is in it? Well, again, this came, it came out of a, a it was one of those things that that just kind of happened, you know. And again, you think about COVID and, and lockdowns and stuff like that. And uh, you may have noticed I'm I'm a quite a chatty sort of guy, and um, I'm I'm quite personable, I think. And I've got a lot of really good friends in this community. And um, it was a reasonably innocuous thing that a good friend of mine said to me at the first Tamworth after the lockdown, the one in April. Mm. Uh, Whatever that was, I can't remember what year last it was. Year. Yeah, it was only yeah. last year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the, the one that was in April, the, but not the one that was in January. Um, and they said, "Oh, we'd love to play on your records, but you don't need anybody on your records. You know, you always you play on your records, and but love one day, I'd love to play on one of your records." And it just kind of sat there. And then over the Christmas break last year, when I had some time to think, for some reason, I it was just an innocuous exchange with the same. Fella, Damien Caffarella uh, from the Wilds, who I love very, very much. He's one of my favourite people in the world, regardless of the fact that he's an incredible musician. And we were having an exchange and um, I just thought to myself, I've got to find a way of um, of doing something a bit different that involves these other people, you know, because I have got this network of amazing musicians um, and I've been thinking about, I mean, I've done a lot of records, Sophie. You know, I started off as a power pop artist and was signed to an American record label in the late 90s, and they were all solo records. And then I started a band, my first country band was Michael Carpenter and the Cuban Heels, and so they were ensemble records. But then I made another couple of solo records, and and I just thought to myself, I don't know, whether, and I play on so many other people's records, I just didn't feel like the world needed another Michael Carpenter solo project, but I'd written a whole bunch of songs that didn't feel like they were going to work with the Banks Brothers project. And so I just came up with this idea of it being a a collective that doesn't have any lineup. It's just whoever I decide. And, and, it, and it became a thing where I would match my perception of somebody's skill set with the song that I'd written. Right. They'd sit there and go, oh, you know, Paul Bain would sound great on this song or Damien would sound great on this or, you know, whatever. So it became a bit of a smorgasbord sort of situation where I had a name of about, I had about 22 or 23 names, including singers, and just kind of went, they sound good on this and put them together and and off we went. And I couldn't be happier with the way that it, it's turned out. I've actually just finished the next single today. Um, and so that'll come out in February. So I think that for the next 12 months or so, it'll be leapfrogging between the Banks Brothers Project and the Country Rock Collective. Um 
So yeah, it's it's just a, and again, that's pushing myself to hear myself in a different context. I'm not really doing very much on this project. I play a bit of acoustic guitar, I sing the lead vocal, and then just send them off to these people, and magically a record comes back. <laughs> and it is a very distinct project from the Banks Brothers. Um, yeah. And you, Michael Carpenter and the Banks Brothers, you are prolific, you are constant, um, and and this it's super entertaining. Is the first thing I noticed about that particular project, um, but also just high quality music and yes, as I said, prolific. So I had this vision of the three of you just constantly getting together to write and record, but <laughs> I know also know you do other things. So how do you manage that project in and around everything else? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, again, these guys are such great ensemble players and because we understand, we understand what our target is for this project. You know, we're not making a Bruce Springsteen record. We're not making an indie pop record. We're not making a power pop record. This is traditional country. So we have set up some parameters for this where, I mean, and that that can be pretty fluid. That in, encompasses bluegrass, of course, which we love, um, all the way through to the band, all the way through to all country, all the way through to very traditional country. And both those boys are heavy into 90s country, you know, the slick, more slick, when country was starting to really cross over into the mainstream again. So we know what the parameters are, and so we work into that. The biggest thing that always freaks people out when I tell them this is I think, like, we're three albums in and about halfway or three-quarters of the way through our fourth album. Um, we don't record together. We recorded together for the first album. We recorded most of that record together in about two or three days and then off for overdubs. But we all the records we made since, including the Bluegrass one, have all been done remotely. Well, that that does not necessarily freak me out, but does blow my mind because <laughs> it's such a cohesive sounding unit. Yeah. Now, the thing, the interesting thing about that is um, we're talking about three very experienced ensemble players. Now, these guys, all of us, we know what it's like to stand up on stage with a band. You know, we know when we don't stay out of the way. You've got two brothers who have been playing together for such a long, long time, and they're the they're the key instrumentalists so they are so used to working across each other and so it's actually a it's it's an alarmingly easy project to pull together like um and we there seems there's an order to it like i'll if we're working on one of my songs i'll put down a guy acoustic guitar and and, and the vocal usually then drums and bass and i send it off to zane because he's a bit more attentive to it and he'll get under that quickly. And then we have to wait for 12 months before Jai's actually got time to put his parts on. But it means that people who are responding to things are already kind of locked in and it actually works out really simply. It's really easy. And we have, but again, it, we, we like each other very, very much. We love to spend more time together, but we're just all busy. Um, but we respect each other enough to know that if somebody puts something down, we never go back to them and go, oh, how do you feel about that? You know, these guys, when you're talking about Jai Perry Banks and Zane Banks, you're talking about two of the best instrumentalists in the world, not just in Australia. You know, they're not going to give me crappy overdubs, you know. They're going to give me great stuff. Um, so it's a joyous project. It's it's so much fun. We did get together last week just to kind of see each other because we haven't seen each other since about April. And just to make sure that we're all on board for what we wanted to do next, which is the next record. And to set some timelines in place and and all that sort of stuff. And uh, we had a nice little couple of hours catch up. We didn't pick up any guitars. We talked about the kids and we talked about this and we played some records. And and then over the course of this week, a whole bunch of overdubs have just arrived in my email and 
the record's sounding amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so when you write songs, do you write with a specific project in mind or are you just going, okay, I've got some time now, I'm going to write all I can? I tend to have a process where whatever project is next on the chopping block, whether it be one of my projects or um, or for an artist, I go into pretty heavy research mode for it. Like I encourage artists to, to, either send, to either put together a playlist for me or to send me some things for me to go and listen to so I can immerse myself into their headspace. And we do the same thing with the Banks Brothers project or, or my project. With the, when, we, when we decided we want to do, do a bluegrass record, uh, the three of us put together a great bluegrass playlist. And we had no songs before it started, before this. And then we list, I listened to it for about two weeks, pretty much nonstop. And then the songs just started coming. And I think I wrote seven songs in about four days because at that point you were just, that was your where your headspace was and that was what you were focused on. Yeah. Um, so I, I tend to I tend to compartmentalise things a bit. There's always a bit of a radar. And, again, the lucky phone thing, there's always notes in there. One of my jobs I was going to do today but I didn't get to, there's a whole bunch of half-done songs um, that I think are really, really good that I just need to go in and, and start to attend to to see where they get shifted towards, whether it's a Banks Brothers thing or whether it's a CRC thing. Or I mean, I've, I've got six songs for what was going to be the next solo record with me playing everything on it. Um, about four or five years ago, I released a single called The Start of Being Alone, and that was supposed to be the first single from that next record and then I just lost interest. But there's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch of really good songs that are just sitting there. So I just write when I need to and when I've got when I've got space to. And over the next couple of weeks when we're on holiday mode, I will have space. And I, I love, I love that. I love that I can just write. And if I don't want to write, then I won't. Um, but it just means I'm stockpiling all the time. Yeah. Um, which does make sense to me because yes prolific output, as already mentioned. Um, now, you got together with the Banks Brothers in person. At the time we're speaking, you're about to play a gig with them. Are you going to be playing in Tamworth? Yes, we've got. Um, it's funny. There's nothing like a couple of golden guitar nominations to get people to send you some gigs. We had we had kind of nothing going on. We had we had one ticketed show booked in for the Thursday, and it was a big kind of thing. We're playing us at West's, oh, yeah. and we don't know whether we sold any tickets. We don't know whether we will sell any tickets, but it's a bit of a leap up for us to to do the ticketed show. Um, but then since um, since the Gold Guitar nominations, a couple more things have come in for the Banks Brothers. And I've even got one little fan zone thing for the CRC. Right. I haven't yet even thought about whether anybody is going to be accompanying me, but it's only three songs, so we should be right. <laughs> <laughs> and you will be in exactly the right place to find some members of the CRC. Exactly. That's the whole point is the fact that literally I've just got charts. Hey, you, what are you doing tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock? Here, here's some charts. Don't need to listen to the songs. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine for you, Tamworth, is a, is a bit of just constantly running around seeing people because you would know so many people who are there or have worked with so many people who are there. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm, I'll I, be honest with you, Sophie. I, I, I struggled a little bit last year and even in the, in sorry, this early this year and even in the April one last year, I'm, I'm, I do suffer a little bit of social anxiety. I get very, very overwhelmed by seeing people i love seeing people but uh when we first got to tamworth this year i walked into the tamworth hotel and it just happened to be that everybody who was in the in the the room that you walk into i knew every single one of them and they just bombarded me 
I had a little mental breakdown. I had to kind of, my partner, Nikki, had to kind of drag me out because she saw that I was starting to get a bit faint and stuff like that. So this year, we've got a bit of a strategy for it where I'm going to go gently, gently. We haven't, I haven't even put it out there that I'm available to do uh, sideman work. Um, normally, I would put it out there that I'm going to do, I'm there to do video work and photography work. I'm not really doing any of that. So I think I've got about five shows over the four days um, and that'll that'll do. And then I'll just go and see my friends or sit by the pool or um, I'll go and see some music for a change. Yeah, yeah. And I actually, I haven't even mentioned the fact that, yes, photography and video are, are part of your suite of skills because I've had you talking for quite a while and you do have a trip to pack for. So <laughs> I'm sure we will talk again, Michael Carpenter, because there is so much to talk about and it's been so interesting talking to you. So thank you very, very much for your time. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I've been really looking forward to this for a long, long time. And I, I, I watch a lot of the stuff that you put up there and it's always you're one of my favourite interviewers to watch. So thank you for having me tonight. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Sunburnt Country Music Podcast. For more Australian country music interviews and reviews and other things, go to sunburntcountrymusic.com or to Sunburnt Country Music on Instagram, Facebook and TikTok.